that we're the custodians of the land for a very short period of time and it's up to us to ensure that the land is looked after well so that when we pass it on to our children or to other farmers in the future, if our children don't want to farm, for instance, then what they get is even better than what we started with. And that's really important to us. Welcome to Mindful Business Founder, the podcast for fashion business founders seeking to build a meaningful and profitable business. I'm Liki Tang, and I'm here with you today to find out how mindful founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. For today's episode, I'm very happy to introduce you to a Tasmanian farmer, Kate Field from West Tasmania in Australia. Kate and her husband Ian started Lip Farm in 2012 while they were still living in Sydney. The story of Lip Farm is a love story that celebrates love in various forms. Their own love story was founded on a wheel of cheese. They shared love for animals, love for nature, and of course, their love for Tasmania. This story is also inspiring in so many ways to all independent business owners. Kate and Ian started their business out of a quest for making the perfect product in their apartment in Sydney. Very soon, they realized that animals' welfare and regeneration of the pasture were at the cornerstone of making the perfect cheese. So they bought a farm. In this episode, Kate will walk us through all the details of the farming philosophy. She will also share with us the reasons why they chose not to get an organic certification for the products and what it implies in terms of sales and distribution. If you're a cheese lover like me, this episode is definitely for you. I really had a lot of fun and learned a lot from Kate Field. So I hope you will too. Welcome, Kate. Thanks, Lakey. Where are you originally from? and uh, How did you end up in Tasmania? Okay, so I was born in Melbourne, uh, six kilometres from the central business district of Melbourne, actually, and I went to school there. I finished my uh, secondary schooling in Melbourne and in Australia, and then I went on to Melbourne Uni and studied there for a year. Um, I got into science law which wasn't my first choice of university degrees, I actually wanted to do medicine and I was pretty disappointed. But then given that I was only 17 years old, I had um, a really formative experience that year and I learned so much. I learned so much about different people. I'd ha- I was so naive as a 17-year-old. I think I'm still pretty naive now, <laughs> but I was so naive as a, as a 17-year-old who'd had a pretty privileged middle-class Anglo-Saxon Australian experience thus far. And I'd performed well enough in my degree that I was granted an interview at the medical school at the University of Tasmania, and I performed well enough in that to be offered a place. So at 
18 years of age, I packed up my bag, left home and flew across the ditch, as we call it, mm-hmm. uh, because Tasmania is an island to the south of mainland Australia. So Tasmania is a state. It's not a separate country. It's still part of Australia. It's just separated by Bass Strait, which is a body of water. Yes. Actually, I was telling my husband that I was going to interview someone from Tasmania. And uh, he's like, oh, what's the flag of Tasmania? And then I told him, that's part of Australia, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I've never been to Tasmania. Why you've decided to stay there? Well, When I was in Melbourne, I never really felt like I was in my place. I was a city girl who yearned for the country. So I was a country girl trapped in a city. I cried when I was on my birthday when I turned 11 because all I wanted for my birthday was a chicken, a lamb and a calf. <laughs> but we lived <laughs> we lived in inner Melbourne. We had a little bit of grass but not enough to feed two animals and it was – you know, completely illegal. Yeah, My sure. mum actually w- looked into getting some chooks for the backyard, which everyone seems to have these days. But back then, about the only place that the council would have allowed us to keep them was in the lounge room. And that, you know, that wasn't a tenable solution. So I was pretty devastated at that point. Uh, we had family who had farms and I used to go and help milk the cows and hang out on various farms and always felt so much happier and so much more comfortable in the country. Uh, when I was 18 and I first went down for my interview, as I landed on the plane at, I think it was at sunrise, and we came around the corner of the highway. There's this beautiful sweeping corner and you you sort of just on a highway, it's nothing special. And then you come around this corner and then opening up for you is Mount Wellington, which presides over the top of Hobart, which is built on the edge of the mountain where it meets the river. And I looked at that and I just knew that I'd come home. And that exact moment, I felt like I'd come home. We're talking almost 25 years ago now, though. I think, yes, 25 years ago. And so it was quite a different place. It had a sleepy regional town vibe to it. It's a lot more cosmopolitan, a lot more multicultural than it was back then. But it's still a fabulous place to live. How big is it? How many people live there? In Hobart or in Tasmania? In Hobart and in Tasmania in general? So Tasmania, I think, has about 520,000 people, so just over half a million. That's tiny. <laughs> it's minute and it's, it's, a very, it's very challenging in a way in that it's a reasonably large geographic area. I can't remember how big it is. I, I can't tell you that. Um, but the population is quite dispersed around two-thirds of the state. One-third of the state is World Heritage Area, locked up forests, lots of mountains, lots of snow in the winter. We're 42 degrees south, so it's very windy in the spring and the autumn um, and quite cool, very much a temperate climate, but not as cold as the Northern Hemisphere. So uh, our cold days are about six degrees centigrade and in summer, which we're just coming at to the end of summer, we had one day of 40 degrees in Hobart, which is just about unheard of. Most of our summer days are about 25 to 28 degrees. So really, really good growing conditions for plants. 
The other thing about Tasmania is that even though it's only 2% of the land mass of Australia, it receives 10% of the rainfall. And that's really important farming-wise as well. But it's it, it's a, a very natural state. So lots of national parks, easy access to the national parks, lots of great camping, pristine beaches with turquoise water, white sand and rocks with red lichens on them. It's just, it is just so beautiful. That sounds lovely. So that's why you decided to stay there. Well, I got into medical school and... That was a six-year degree when I did it. And in my final year of medical school, I met my husband. I'd been planning to move back to Melbourne and pursue a career as a surgeon because I just didn't think I'd ever find someone that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with at all. I just didn't think anyone would want to be with me, not because <laughs> I wasn't worthy, but because I'm just a little bit different and a little bit different thinking. And then I met this bloke and he thinks a bit differently too. And I really liked him and he really liked me. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just do my internship in Tassie. We'll give this relationship a go. We'll see if it works or not. And it's not going to work if I leave to go back to Melbourne. And so I stayed for a year. Then he proposed. I said yes. <laughs> and the deal was done. He was doing a PhD at the time. And he was not quite halfway through. So, well, I decided to stay until he'd finished his PhD. Once he'd handed that in, we took six months off from work and travelled from Hobart to Darwin, which is right up the other end of the centre part of Australia. And we drove, we bought a, bought a ute, we chucked the dog in it, we chucked a swag in it, and we actually bought a tent when we were en route. Chucked in some toys, so we kite surf and we had our kayaks with us and we drove from Hobart to Darwin along the west coast of Australia and that took us six months. And then we came home for another six months, I think it was, and then he got his first postdoctoral fellowship up back up in Darwin. So we moved to Darwin for three years. I continued my specialty training. Uh, by that stage, I decided I wanted to be an emergency specialist It was just a career that I really, really enjoyed as a junior doctor and I really, really enjoy as a specialist now. And uh, so I continued training up in the Northern Territory in Darwin and then his research position finished up there and he got a new position in Sydney at Macquarie University. So I got a job there, finished up my specialty training and set all my horrible exams and then started working in Sydney. So you must have felt very miserable in Sydney. Well, we weren't really miserable, but we weren't really happy. We were sitting in traffic a lot. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm going to offend one-fifth of Australia's population when I say this. When you live in Sydney, you live with, you know, 20% of the other Australians. So Sydney and Greater Sydney is about 5 million people and in a country only 22 million That's sort of 20 to 25% of the country. And the roads are incredibly congested. And so you sit in traffic and that's really boring. And the other thing that we found was that we went to Sydney and we'd walk around the streets at night of our suburb that we lived in and we'd giggle at the people who were so caught up in their Sydney lives that they were working the whole time to pay for their big houses and their big boats and their flash cars Then after a couple of years, we 
found ourselves almost falling into the same trap and we thought, oh, we've got to get out. We've got to get out before we end up like these people that we we were giggling about, people who sort of lost touch with what's important. So we were making cheese in the kitchen at home as a hobby and we were really enjoying it. I was often doing lots of work in rural places around New South Wales and often I could source uh, local milk and so we'd bring that home and we'd make up some cheese and we sort of figured that it couldn't be that hard to make it on a commercial scale. So we decided that instead of making cheese at home in the kitchen, that we'd make cheese commercially. So we started as a hobby. So we started making cheese as a hobby and then we decided, yep, we can make cheese commercially. It can't be that difficult. And to make cheese commercially, you need lots of milk and to get milk, you need to milk animals. And so we decided that we'd buy a farm and we'd milk the animals and then we'd make cheese. So we did. But why cheese? Why cheese? I love cheese, so I know. Do you love cheese? Well, yeah, I do now. I hated cheese when I was a kid. Oh, so why did you start making cheese? Well, I hated it when I was a kid, but when I was 18 and went to Tassie, Tassie was renowned in Australia in the 90s for its cheese products. And so my friends, when I moved to Tassie, introduced me to cheese. And I decided that I did actually quite like cheese after all. Then when my husband met me, he he came over one afternoon and I was a student. I had no money. I had a dog and uh, the dog's needs were always prioritised. It was sort of, you know, coming up to dinner time and we were both hungry. And uh, I opened the fridge door and in there was dog food and a wheel of cheese. And the options were dog food or cheese. So I opened the door and said... <laughs> I hope you like cheese. And he said, I love cheese. So the dog was happy. We were happy. Uh, we ate the cheese and, uh, yeah, really enjoy different cheeses. My husband's actually from the UK and spent quite a bit of time in France uh, when he was a student. So he's had exposure to really good cheeses. So is it goat cheese? It's goat cheese that we make, yes. So you make goat cheese? Is that all you make? Uh, sort of. I mean, we we only make goat's cheese. We don't make cow cheese. We don't make sheep cheese. We don't do combined cheese, although we might in the future because our next-door neighbours are, are cow dairy farmers and we could do something collaborative with them in the future. But at the moment, we only make goat cheese. We also have beef cattle and we also have the male goats that we keep and any of the girls that we don't want to milk in the future and they stay on farm once they've had a life on farm um, and they've grown to an appropriate size then we send them to the abattoir and we get the goat meat back and we sell that as well. So you make cheese, you produce meat and that's it? I saw it a lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I understand that with Lip Farm, you're focusing on two main things. One, which is animal welfare, and the other thing is the better use of land. Do I understand it well? Can you explain? Yeah. So 
Um, when we were talking about making cheese commercially in our kitchen, when we were in our kitchen in Sydney and about to go down this road, uh, one of the things that was really important to us was the quality of the milk. So the quality of the milk is impacted by the health of the animals and the health of the animals comes from not only how they're managed but also how the land and in particular the soil is managed. So if you don't have healthy pasture, if you don't have healthy soils, you will not have healthy animals. And the happiness of the animals is also very, very important to us. And we decided that the best way to ensure that we got happy quality milk was to ensure that we had happy quality animals Mm. and pasture on which to feed them and that Mm. the only way that we could guarantee that was to have a farm. So the farm was secondary in a way to the idea of producing a or, or starting a business to produce cheese. But that also fitted in with what both of us had always wanted. We'd both always wanted to farm. I think in retrospect, we're crazy, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you say that you're different. You found someone who's also different. So what do you expect? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's true. That's why we're on this mad adventure together and having a good time while we do it. So with Leap Farm, the... Welfare of the animals is paramount to us, as well as the welfare of the land. And we feel that, as pretty much every farmer I've ever spoken to feels, that we're the custodians of the land for a very short period of time. And it's up to us to ensure that the land is looked after well, so that when we pass it on to our children or to other farmers in the future, if our children don't want to farm, for instance, then what they get is even better than what we started with. And that's really important to us. I'm a city person. So what does it mean to take good care of of the land? What does it mean in practice and the day-to-day farming? Um, Well, it means there's a lot to think about. So we talk about livestock as in, you know, the goats or the cattle or um, other people's livestock, for instance, being sheep or chickens or ducks or geese or whatever your livestock are. And, And that's the livestock that, you know, walk on top of the pasture. We also have livestock under the pasture in the soil. And these are bacteria and fungi and protozoa and worms and all sorts of other creatures that are absolutely and utterly critically important for the health of the soil. So some of the things that we do is to ensure the health of the livestock above. We have to look after the livestock below. And things that will damage the soil are things like synthetic fertilisers, chemicals, spraying, overgrazing, just to mention a few. inadequate fencing, um, which often leads to overgrazing. We also are very aware that we need to look after the biodiversity, not just in the soil, but also above. So that means making sure that there's room for native animals, that there's room for birds, that there's habitat for those animals, for the birds, for the frogs, for fish in some 
cases. We don't have, I don't think we've got fish on our land. Um, we've got dams and we've got a creek that runs in the winter time, but we don't have permanent water running through the property. So I don't think we have fish. So looking after all of those things, as well as just looking after the soil and looking after the animals is is really important to us. So maintaining the landscape, maintaining the ecosystem, um, everything relies on something else. It's a very complex web. And uh, traditionally, in Australia at least, uh, farmers will try and remove one part of the ecosystem because it doesn't work for them. But that then has ramifications throughout the rest of the system, often with unintended consequences. We also know that increasing diversity improves productivity. So it's really important to have a diverse range of insects and spiders and frogs and birds and so on because it actually makes for a healthier landscape, healthier soil and so healthier animals for us that we farm, better quality milk, which is then going to lead to better quality cheese. So is it organic? It's not organic because to be organic means that you require certification. We looked into becoming organic really early on, I think even before we actually started on the farm, and we made the decision that that wasn't a route that we wanted to go down. So while we use organic principles, or we decided that organic wasn't for us because oh, lots of different reasons. One, because animal welfare is so important to us. And it's not part of organic. Well, um, for instance, if we've got a sick animal, we get the vet to come out and the vet says, you need to treat them this way and this way, and that's in the best interest of the animal, then we will do that. But that may mean that they have to be excluded from the herd because their milk is no longer considered organic. And that might be excluded from the herd for a short time. It might be excluded from the herd for a medium length of time, like a couple of months or the rest of the season, or it might be that they need to be excluded from the herd for the duration of their life. And mm -hmm. uh, goats are very much herd animals. If they are left on their own, especially our goats, they start screaming, they get very distressed, they get very anxious, and that's to exclude them from the herd is to harm them. So we decided from an animal welfare perspective that that wasn't aligning with our value system. The other thing about organic status is that it's an accredited status from a certified organisation that's a, an organisation that has to be for profit. I mean, it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for profit. Yeah, sure. Which means that you have to pay them to receive your organic certification. And that works fine if everyone has integrity, but if either party doesn't have integrity and games the system, well, that can lead to potentially bribing or paying more for their organic status, even though they might not be as organic as what the consumers expect. It also means that they can be doing something a couple of weeks ago, have their audit and pass their audit because there's been enough time that whatever the situation was. We, we just felt that it was buying a status that we didn't need to buy. 
we believe w- integrity is one of our most important values. We have a very transparent system uh, in place where we invite people to come to the farm. We don't use distributors. We have direct relationships with our customers because we are small and we've made a very conscious decision to not have a distributor um, because we want to have that direct relationship with the customer. Organic status and certification is really useful if you don't have a direct relationship with your customer because then your customer's relying on this third party, the organic certifier, to have that relationship with the producer on your behalf and say, yep, yep, they're good, that, that what they're doing is fine. But we decided that we just want to have a direct relationship with our our consumers or our customers with a very transparent farm so that people can come onto the farm, they can see what we're doing with the animals at any time and really get an idea of what we're doing. And we feel that that has more integrity, more honesty, more authenticity and is better for our animals, better for our landscape and better for our customers as well. You don't sell through a distributor. You sell directly to your customers, to end customers. Yeah. Where? In in your farm or in the shop or Um, online? (laughs) We don't do online sales. People sometimes contact us through social media and occasionally we will do something, you know, through Australia Post. We, we're really small and we have no intention to scale. We are quite happy to remain small. I think we would be referred to as a micro dairy. So we milk 72 goats. We get about 100 litres of milk a day at the moment. At the peak production time in the season, we were getting about 150 litres of milk a day. So we're very, very small. I mean, we're really a two-and-a-half-person operation. My husband, who's more than full-time, we've got an employee who's pretty much full-time and we have some um, other uh, dairy hands that help us out. So we're probably 2.5 FTE and then I do a little bit around the edges. But the nice thing about being small is that we don't actually have to have a distributor So for us to then have a distributor, we'd have to take a 30% pay cut, which would mean that we'd have to scale up to a big enough size that we could offset that. And And increase the price as well. uh, Yeah, although it's a price, food, food and price is another discussion for (laughs) for maybe (laughs) later. It's really hard. People don't want to pay money for food. Mm. You know, in the 1950s, 25% of your household budget was spent on food. Today it's 10% and people still complain. And so, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. It, yeah, so increasing prices is really hard to do, especially because our price point is quite high already because we are a boutique quality product. To scale up, we would have to get a lot bigger and that's not necessarily the right thing for the land or the right thing for our mental health. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
uh, what was I? I was saying something else before before I went to that. I was asking you where you where you were selling your cheese, and you said not online. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we sold direct to restaurants and caterers, and um, a, a, quite a large proportion of our cheese sales goes to to the restaurant industry, hospitality industry. We also sell to some retail outlets directly as well. Mm-hmm. And we also do two different farmers markets. So we do our local farmers market, which is literally two kilometers down the road. So people say, well, where are you? And I point to the hill and say, see that building over there? That's where, <laughs> that's where we milk the goats. And at the other end, that's where Ian makes the cheese. Uh, oh, look, you can see our goats walking past. It's, it's the lowest food miles you can possibly get. Uh, and we also um, go to a, a farmer's market in Hobart as well. So we sell directly to our customers there. In regards to the meat sales, again, we sell through our local farmer's market and we've just started um, selling some of our goat meat to a couple of different butchers in town as well as to some restaurants as well. But I've I struggle to keep up with demand for the meat sales, really struggle to keep up with demand, which is fantastic. What a great conversation. There is so much love and dedication in Lip Farm. What really resonated with me in this part of our conversation is the high level of integrity that transpires from Kate and Ian's work with this obsession of making the best cheese for their customers. In the process, they also provide exceptional care to the goats and strive to do everything to regenerate the little piece of land they're on, because those two conditions are underpinning the quality of cheese. They chose not to have an organic certification, which implies a closer relationship with their customers, which also means that their sales growth is limited. But they are perfectly happy with the current size and have no plans to scale right now. Lip Farm is really the type of business we love to learn from. Independent, mindful business owners creating a change in their very own way. If you want to keep on learning from Kate, make sure you listen to the next episode where Kate will reveal more of the business aspects of Lip Farm. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week. Did you like this episode? If you enjoyed listening to Mindful Business Founder, it will mean a lot to me if you can share this with your friends who are also in their sustainability journey. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Bye-bye now.